Grab your Bibles and stand with me for our scripture reading this morning and turn to the book of Acts. We'll be reading Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 630 of the Pew Bible as Pastor Bruce continues in our series, Daring to Be the Church on Mission, Unstoppable. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Stephen. So we're going to be reading Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel." God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word and how it changes us. Thank you for your son and his death on the cross. I ask that we would be drawn to you this morning through the words of Pastor Bruce. Help us to be a church that is unstoppable on mission for you and doing what you call us to do. Open our hearts and minds to be drawn closer to you and to learn what you would have us to today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Zach, for leading us in our scripture reading. As we continue in our series through the, uh, the book of Acts that we've been in for some weeks now, and a series we're calling Unstoppable because that's exactly what God's church is. God's church is unstoppable. And uh, Lord willing, that is our desire, our goal, our mission is we want to be an unstoppable church. We want to be a church daring to be on mission for God, an unstoppable church. And so we're taking lessons from the book of Acts and seeking to apply them to our church, to our lives as Christ followers uh, along the way. And that's our goal here, even this morning, as we now look at the life of a man, a man named Stephen, and we look at his courageous witness when the heat is turned up on his life. In fact, uh, we're going to take three Sundays to look at the life of Stephen. We're going to take today... And look at the first part of his life here as a courageous witness. And then the Sunday after Mother's Day, we're going to come back and look at his, his, uh, his message, his sermon, his, his defense, if you will, uh, against this council that was opposing him. And then on our third Sunday, Memorial Day weekend, we will actually look at the death of Stephen and learn how to die in a Christ-like way. Are we ready to live for Christ? The question is, are we ready to live for Christ as well? And uh, so it's a great, great, great story to examine here this morning in the life of Stephen. In fact, Paul DeVries writes in an article on ChristianPost.com, more people are suffering for their faith in Christ than perhaps at any other time in history. Christians are suffering, he says. In Muslim countries and many places such as Africa, Southern Asia, and the Middle East, 
Not only are churches burned with worshipers locked inside, and other Christians are severely tortured, but more camouflage persecution continues too, with harsh discrimination in jobs, education, housing, and other necessities. In some countries like Afghanistan, no churches are even allowed. It is a capital crime either to communicate the gospel or to commit your life to Jesus Christ, like we saw here with these three young children. ISIS militants continue to persecute Christians even today. Last year in the town of Mosul in northern Iraq, the Christians there were given a 10-hour ultimatum. Leave now or convert to Islam or be persecuted for your faith. They destroyed Christian worship sites and burned their books and erected the black flag of ISIS in their place, signaling that they had conquered Christianity. The families that fled were all robbed at gunpoint, and as they did, were forced to flee on foot without food or water. After the deadline, the jihadists marked Christian houses with the letter N for Nazarene to show that they had been seized as property of the Islamic State for the crime of being Christians. Now, this kind of persecution this kind of hostility toward Christ, it, it seems somewhat unreal to us here in our country. But it is not unthinkable that at some point in the future that this could be our lives as well. And the question is, when that point comes here in our country, if that point comes to you personally, the question for all of us here this morning is, will I stand for Jesus Christ or will I deny him as my Lord and Savior? In our country today, we, we currently face different levels of a more acceptable kind of opposition for being a Christian, from legal attacks on our beliefs to mockery in our schools to hostility in the workplace. And the temptation then, here in our country, the temptation is to not live for Christ overtly. The temptation is not to boldly proclaim Christ for fear of being opposed, for fear of being ridiculed, or even threatened, perhaps. But I wonder what Stephen would say if he could speak with us today. What would Stephen say to us as a church here in America? I think Stephen would call us to be courageous witnesses for Jesus Christ. Although Stephen may not be here physically today to speak with us, his life and his legacy still speaks to us here in the book of Acts. And though Stephen's life is cut short in the story of Acts, listen, his life is still significant Nonetheless, his legacy is clearly seen throughout the book in the ministry of the man who played a part in his death, Saul of Tarsus. So who exactly is this man? Who is Stephen? Well, Stephen was a Hellenistic or a, a Greek culture Jew, if we could call him that. 
who believed in Jesus Christ, who accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, a man who put his faith in what Jesus had done on the cross for him in paying the penalty for his sins. And so, first and foremost, Stephen was a Christ follower like you and I. Like those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. He was part of the church at Jerusalem, too. He also preached the longest sermon in the book of Acts. We'll look at that sermon in a couple of weeks. But today, I want us to see this. Stephen was a man who was crowned with courage. He was a man crowned with courage. Stephen was a courageous witness for Jesus Christ, who died as the first Christian martyr. Now, you'll notice a picture. Actually, it's a painting up on the screen as well. In fact, I'm going to be showing you a series of paintings uh, that were done by a Spanish painter, and these are in a series of paintings that are known as the Martyrdom of Stephen. Some of you will like be asking yourself, why is he showing me that? Some of you may appreciate these paintings. Kind of give you a uh, one man's visual interpretation of what this may have looked like. What's interesting here is Stephen's name means victor's crown. And the word martyr is translated from a word that actually means witness. And so understanding that, I agree with what one Bible scholar said. Stephen was a martyr before they stoned him. In other words, Stephen was a man who died for Christ because of his courageous witness for Christ. So, why should I care about this? Why should I care about Stephen? You're here this morning, you're sitting in the pew, and perhaps you're asking yourself that question. Why should I care about a guy who lived many, many years before me here in the book of Acts? Why should I care that he lived for Christ? Why should I care that he died as a martyr for Christ? Well, first of all, Stephen's story is recorded in the Bible for us. And so God must think that his story... His life, his legacy is pretty significant, and he wants us to take note of it. And then second, being a witness for Christ is something Jesus calls us to as Christ followers. And Stephen is just that. Stephen is a witness for Jesus Christ. And so there is something for us to learn from his life. And then a third reason is courage is indispensable. Courage is indispensable in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, here we are. We are called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And courage is indispensable for that. And Stephen was a courageous witness. So again, there's something for us to learn from him. So we ought to care about Stephen's story because his life as a courageous witness is biblical, it's practical, and it is relevant even for us today in the 21st century. So let me show you this. Let's walk through this uh, first portion of Stephen's life here together this morning. Number one, living as a courageous witness for Jesus Christ. A courageous witness relies on God's power. A courageous witness relies on God's power. We were first introduced to Stephen last Sunday when he was selected by the church at Jerusalem as one of the seven men who would fulfill the ministry of witnessing, not witnessing, I'm sorry, of uh, caring for the widows in the church there. Now imagine this. This church in Jerusalem, as we learned last Sunday, was anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 people. And so out of this 
mega-sized church of 20,000 believers, Stephen stood out with six other men as a man of character, as a man of integrity. And serving widows here was a valuable and noble ministry for Stephen to serve in. But Stephen's ministry, this is what I want us to notice here, Stephen's ministry does not stop with just serving widows. Luke tells us, now here in verse 8, that Stephen, did you catch the wording he uses? Did great wonders and signs among the people. Up until this point, it was only the apostles who did that. It was only the apostles who were doing wonders and signs among the people. But now here, Stephen was also used by God to do something supernatural. At one level, Stephen reminds us that you don't have to be an apostle to do a great work for the Lord. God can use anyone. God can use even young people like yourselves. God can use young adults, middle-aged adults, old adults. It doesn't matter. God can use anyone who will simply make themselves available to God. And that's what Stephen is doing here. At another level, Stephen challenges us to consider whether or not there may be more that God wants to do through you than what you are currently doing for him today. Stephen inspires us to to open ourselves up to being used by God in greater ways than we already are. But how was it that Stephen now was able to do these supernatural things as a courageous witness for Jesus Christ. Well, notice this in your notes. Stephen was a man who was full of godliness. He's a man full of godliness. Stephen was full of the Spirit, Luke tells us. He was full of wisdom, full of faith, grace, and power. Take note of the godliness of Stephen here in Acts 6, starting in verse 3. It says, therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And who did the church choose? They chose seven men. One of those men being Stephen. Verse 5 tells us that Stephen was full of faith and power. Or uh, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And verse 8 says Stephen was full of faith and power. In fact, some translations say full of grace and power. And so Stephen here was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of wisdom. He's full of faith. He's full of grace. And he's full of power. Now, I don't know about you, but that's some pretty high praise for a man in the Bible. Very high praise. But what does it mean when it says Stephen was, quote, full of these things? What does it mean to be full of something? Well, this is a bottle of water, as you can tell. Nothing unique about this bottle of water, but if I was to squeeze it, what would come out? Water. Why? Because it's full of water. That's a pretty simple illustration, right? I mean, even I can understand that illustration. I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I get that illustration. Hey, whatever that bottle's full of, you know, hey, you squeeze it, that's what's going to come out of the bottle. And the same can be true for us as human beings, for people. When it comes to people, what comes out, listen, what comes out of you when you are squeezed by life, by circumstances, by pressure, shall we even say by suffering, by persecution, by hostility, 
Whatever is squeezing you, well, that's what's going to come out, right? People can be full of all kinds of things, such as anger, bitterness, greed, jealousy, lust. Or people can be full of things that are on the positive side, such as love, kindness, and peace. To be full of something is to be so characterized by that thing that you are seemingly controlled by that. Like when someone is full of rage, they are controlled then by rage. And it shows itself when the pressure is on and something in life is squeezing them. And whatever's in the inside, in this case, rage, it comes out. Or, when someone is full of kindness, they are controlled by kindness. And so let's stop and ask a very practical question here. What are you full of? Now, I know some people at work or your family members may tell you, you're full of... I've been told that too. I'm, Man, you're just full of hot air. Or you're full of whatever. But seriously, think about it. What are you full of? If you want to ask the question in a more serious way, notice this. Are you full of yourself? Are you full of self-righteousness? Are you full of bitterness and resentment? Are you full of anger or greed or jealousy or lust? Or are you so controlled by the Holy Spirit that you are full of love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, which, by the way, those nine virtues are the fruit of the Spirit. Let me ask you, what are you known for? What are you known for? Stephen was known for being full of wisdom, faith, grace, and power, and I believe it was because he was, first and foremost, he was full of the Spirit of God. In other words, Stephen was so controlled by the Spirit of God that he demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit and exhibited the power of the Spirit in the wonders and signs that he did, which is consistent with what Jesus told his disciples back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This power was also an answer to the disciples' prayer back in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 30, when they pray, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all, all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And that's exactly what Stephen is doing here now in verse 8. He was boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ. And he was boldly pointing people to Jesus Christ through the signs and wonders that he was doing. Now there's something else before we move on that I want you to notice about Stephen here in Acts 6. Understand, Stephen is not like some kind of superhero that's rising up out of the pages of God's Word. He's not some forgotten superhero in Marvel's Avengers. How many have seen the new movie yet? Is it pretty good? Okay. In fact, it's interesting, Stephen's not even called an apostle here. He's not called a pastor. He's not even called a deacon. He's not called an elder. 
In fact, he has no title whatsoever, except he is a servant to widows. And yet his ministry goes way beyond that. Stephen was an ordinary, get this, an ordinary Christ follower who simply relied on God's power to be a courageous witness for Christ. And the same can be true for you when you rely on the power of God through His Spirit that dwells within every believer of Jesus Christ. So we see from Stephen that a courageous witness, first and foremost, relies on God's power. But like Stephen, if we start living this way, oh, if we start living this way, we better get ready. We better get ready for opposition, which brings us to point two. A courageous witness faces hostility toward Christ. The pattern in the book of Acts has been that as soon as Jesus begins to work miraculously through his church, Satan begins to work maliciously against his church. Preaching on the book of Acts, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones remarked, the church has had to fight for her life from the very beginning. From the moment it was born, the church has faced a world that has done everything it could to exterminate Christianity. The church in Jerusalem has just barely begun. And already we've seen the hostility and the opposition from the Jewish religious leaders. Peter and John and the other disciples have been imprisoned, and they have been beaten for proclaiming Jesus Christ. Now, this shouldn't be of any surprise to us. After all, Jesus promised that when we as Christ followers stand for Jesus, live for Jesus, proclaim Jesus, we will meet resistance. He says this, he tells us this in Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, Jesus says. So get ready. Get ready. A courageous witness faces hostility toward Christ. And Stephen was no exception here. In fact, notice the hostility that he faced. First of all, Stephen faced adversaries who openly opposed him for his witness of Jesus Christ. They openly opposed him. Look what it says in verse 9. Look at it. Look in your Bibles. It says, Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. Now, who in the world are these guys? The freedmen. Well, the freedmen were descendants of Jewish slaves or prisoners from foreign lands who were captured by Pompey in 63 B.C. and taken to Rome, and now they have been freed some 70 years later. And these are the descendants of those people. These freedmen, listen, they're still very much committed to the Jewish faith, Jewish traditions, Jewish customs, and some now have moved back to Jerusalem and have formed their own synagogue in the city of Jerusalem. And since what's interesting, since Paul was from one of these areas that Luke mentions, it's intriguing to think that the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul, may have heard Stephen preach about Jesus in this synagogue and may have even debated with Stephen about Jesus. Apparently, 
Stephen was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ in this synagogue of freedmen. And these men were offended. And they started to rise up and argue with Stephen. In fact, Luke uses the word disputing with him. As in the case throughout the book of Acts, it doesn't seem to be the miracles that Stephen performed that caused his adversaries to openly oppose him. It was the message that he was proclaiming. And what was that message? It was the message of Jesus Christ. And we can expect to face opposition as well when we proclaim Jesus. Second, Stephen faced adversaries who then secretly plotted against him. And they plotted against him through lies and deceit. Stephen's adversaries first tried to refute him by openly opposing him, but when that didn't work, they started a smear campaign against him. They attacked him with lies and with deceit when they couldn't overcome the wisdom of his arguments about Jesus. In fact, verse 11 says, look at it, then they secretly induced men to say, oh, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. In fact, they probably bribed some people into accusing Stephen of blasphemy against Moses and God, which was a most serious charge or crime in first century Jerusalem, one that ultimately got Jesus crucified, if you remember. Maybe Stephen said, maybe he was proclaiming and teaching in the synagogue of these freedmen, and maybe he said that, hey, true salvation is through Jesus Christ alone and not the law of Moses. What we would know as the Ten Commandments. Maybe Stephen said that Moses could never bring salvation, but Jesus has brought salvation once and for all through his death and through his resurrection. Whatever it was that Stephen said, listen, they twisted it. And they used it against him, as often is the case whenever the gospel is proclaimed. And then they arrested Stephen and brought false witnesses to testify against him in verses 12 and 13. Look at it. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. That council, you can just think of that as kind of the, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders. And they also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. This holy place is a reference to the temple that they worshipped in. The main charge they brought against Stephen is then found in verse 14 where they expand on it. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, will destroy this temple in which we are now congregating in and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. These were serious charges. Few things, get this, few things were more important to the Jewish people than their temple and their traditions. Oh, they coveted those things. In fact, we're going to see when we look at the message of Stephen, they worshiped those things, idolized those things. Now, briefly here, let me just kind of draw our attention to what Stephen's talking about here. We'll get into it more in detail when we look at his message and defends himself. But I, I don't want you to miss the theological, and don't let that word scare you, significance that these religious leaders missed here in verse 14. 
In the Old Testament, the temple was the place where sacrifices were made. So an unholy people, like us, could commune with a holy God. And so you were dependent back then to bring your sacrifice to the priest and they were offer it to God at the temple. But now, now this is no longer a place. It is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here, pointing to Himself. So when Stephen speaks about the the temple, the physical temple being destroyed, he was emphasizing that we have direct access to God now through Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. So now there is no further need for the temple rituals and customs and sacrifices. And so when the religious leaders accuse Stephen of speaking against this holy place of the temple, in reality, he was speaking of a holier person, Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting, even today, do you realize Orthodox Jews walk around in black grieving the destruction of the temple? They've missed it. They're worshiping a place instead of the person. They're mourning a place instead of worshiping the person of Jesus Christ and what he has already done for them with his death on the cross and his resurrection. And Stephen now comes And he's proclaiming, in other words, he's basically saying to these Jewish people, hey, cheer up! What are you grieving about? A greater temple has come. We now have access to God through Jesus Christ. Whoa! Man, that's us! It's startling, though, when you step back from this. It's rather startling how similar all of this is to the way the Jewish leaders had just treated Jesus a few months earlier. They dragged Stephen before the very same council that had falsely accused Jesus and wrongly tried Jesus. And now Stephen was the victim of the same kangaroo court. And the writing on the wall was already there for Stephen. As I've read this story more than once in my life, I can't help but wonder, when you begin to read through this passage, especially here at the beginning, and he's seized and he's brought before this same court that Jesus was brought to, which ultimately led to his crucifixion. Do you wonder, do you think Stephen was scared? Do you think Stephen realized that his life was nearing the end? Do you think think he knew he was going to die already now as a martyr for Jesus Christ? One thing is for sure, we know this, Stephen didn't stop speaking for Christ. He didn't stop speaking about Jesus. He didn't stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He continued to be a courageous witness for Christ, even if perhaps he knew it would cost him his life. He was not only willing to live for Jesus, he was willing to die for the sake of Jesus. Perhaps you're wondering how Stephen could be so bold, though. 
Man, how is that possible? How could he be so bold and stand so strong in the face of hostility? Well, the answer is number three. A courageous witness stands strong in the Spirit of God. We've already seen in verse 9 that Stephen was proclaiming the gospel when some men from the synagogue of the freedmen rose up to argue with him, to dispute him, to oppose him. But I love what Luke tells us in verse 10. Go back to verse 10. You've got to see this because this is the best verse in the whole thing here. Look what it says. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Man, that is awesome. I don't miss this either. Stephen here, he wasn't speaking by his own strength. He was, he was speaking by the power and the wisdom of the Spirit of God that dwelled within him. Instead of giving up, instead of giving in, Stephen stood strong in the Spirit. And he continued to speak about Jesus when the people rose up against him. This is why Peter, this is why Peter, as we've seen already, it's why he was able to speak so boldly before these same religious leaders back in Acts chapter 4. It was precisely what Jesus had promised in Luke 12, 11 and 12. Look what, listen to what Jesus says. And when they bring you before the synagogues, Jesus is basically telling them, hey, this is going to happen. Be prepared for this. And when it does, he's saying, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Jesus tells the disciples, and he tells us even now, he says this, don't be anxious. Yeah, what? Don't be anxious about that? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. And then Jesus tells us why. For the Holy Spirit, he says, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that's exactly what is happening here with Stephen. Later on, Jesus gave this promise to his disciples in a moment of crisis and persecution in Luke 21, 15. I will give you a mouth in wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Whoa, so awesome. We might be tempted, we might be tempted to look at Stephen here, and we might want to think to ourselves, man, wouldn't it have just been a whole lot easier if he had just quieted down or walked away when they opposed him? Just kind of walked out of the temple? Wouldn't that have been easier? Sure, that would have been the easy thing to do, no doubt. And maybe, like myself, you've taken that easy path. We all have, haven't we? But Stephen knew. He knew within his gut because he had a conviction about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew he could not let opposition silence his witness and that he must continue to proclaim the good news about Jesus. Why? Because the good news of Jesus is what makes a difference in man's life, in people's life, in my life, in your life. Stephen's courageous witness, folks, listen, it challenges us here, and hopefully it convicts us here to consider our own witness today, and perhaps even in the face of opposition. What we see here from Stephen is that when we stand for God, 
God will stand with us. True. God may not spare us from suffering. But listen, he will stand with us even as we suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, God gave Stephen, this is cool, God gave Stephen, get this, visual proof that he was with him in verse 15. Look at it. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Now, can you imagine being part of that council and sitting in that temple court? Can you imagine being there yourself and seeing someone with the face of an angel? Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm not quite sure what the face of an angel looks like. The closest I've come to seeing the face of an angel is the day my wife walked down the aisle to marry me. Oh. Oh. And then we had two boys who now act like the devil, and I'm still trying to figure that one out. I'm like, what went wrong here? Just kidding, boys. Seriously, though, imagine with me. Imagine Stephen standing in front of the council of these religious leaders with everyone in the courtroom watching to see how is he going to react. How is he going to react to these false charges that we're bringing against him? And what did they see? Oh, the religious leaders, mind you, they offered warlike stares to Stephen. But what they saw in return must have been somewhat disconcerting for them because they did not see eyes of hatred returning evil for evil. They did not see a look of fear cowering and trembling. They did not see a man shrinking in insecurity. Oh no, instead they saw the face of an angel. They saw a face that communicated godly confidence, a face that communicated a heavenly peace because God was with him. So what do we learn from that? What do we learn from this? Oh, I think we can learn something valuable for this in point number four. A courageous witness reflects God's glory. You know, the face of an angel, that phrase, it's a rather unique phrase. In fact, it's a, it's a rare phrase in in the Bible. One Bible scholar writes, this is the description of a person who was close to God and reflects some of his glory as a result of being in God's presence. Now, whether Stephen's face had a radiant glow like Moses' face when he came down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments, go back to that story. In fact, a lot of scholars compared this incident to that incident because he was being accused of blaspheming Moses. And this was God's way of saying, no, he's not. I've given him my approval. Or perhaps his face was, had this just serene calmness and peace about it. We don't know for sure. Luke doesn't tell us. But here's what we can say. We do know this. We can say that Stephen's face did not look normal here. 
God bestowed his own glory on Stephen. So much so that his face reflected back some of God's glory and he looked like the face of an angel. What a beautiful sight that must have been. If you ever find yourself in the crosshairs of opposition because of your standing for Christ, listen, I, I can't promise you that God will put a heavenly glow on your face like an angel. But I do believe this. I do believe that God will give you grace. God will give you grace, power, to stand strong as a courageous witness. And I do believe there is such a thing as supernatural grace that is given to those who suffer for the sake of the gospel, just as Stephen did here. Now, as I look out among this audience, I will say there, you guys are a great-looking group to look at. Beautiful, beautiful audience here. But I'll have to admit as well, I don't see any glowing faces here like an angel. It's just not happening for me. And so while I don't see any glowing faces here this morning, I wonder, I wonder what, what will people see in you? Will they see a courageous witness for Jesus Christ? Will they see someone who is bold in proclaiming Jesus? Will they see someone who is full of the Spirit and standing strong in the Spirit? As you consider these questions, I think there are, there are two myths, and this isn't in your notes here. I think there are two myths that we're tempted to believe when we hear stories like this, stories like Stephen, when we hear of a life like Stephen, and we're tempted to believe these two things. And the first is, oh, I will not have to face hostility and opposition toward Jesus like Stephen faced. You see, we, we know, because we watch the news or we read about it on the internet, we know persecution is real in other parts of the world. In our heads, we know that. We just don't think it will ever be real here in our country. We know Christians are suffering for their faith, but we think that suffering is far away and we're still safe and secure. But listen, when we become a Christian, we do not sign up for a guaranteed life of peace and comfort. We sign up to follow Christ in suffering. Jesus himself he busts this myth right out of the water when he says in John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So don't leave here this morning think that I will never have to face hostility and opposition or even persecution for my faith. No, we need to get ready and be prepared for it. The second myth I think we are tempted to believe is, well, Bruce, if that is true what you're saying, if, if that is coming my way, if I'm called to suffer for Jesus, oh man, there's no way that I can handle that. There's no way that I can be a courageous witness like Stephen. We think there's no way that I can be like Stephen. He was so courageous, and I am so fearful 
We think Stephen was some kind of superhero Christian because his story is in the Bible. Yes, Stephen courageously lived for Christ. And as we will see, he courageously died for Christ. But it was not, not by his own power and strength. It was by God's power and by God's strength. Which means, as we come to the end of this, listen to me. Young people, listen to me dearly as you go to school and you're faced with some of this and as you go to work in the workplace or you have neighbors, whatever the case may be, listen to me. This is what this means. You and I, we can be bold for Jesus. You say, why? How is that possible? Here's why. Because the same Spirit, the same Spirit who worked in the book of Acts, listen to me, that same Spirit works today. The same Spirit who gave Stephen power to be a courageous witness for Jesus Christ will give you power to be a courageous witness for Jesus Christ. Man, let me encourage you this morning to claim Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8. Make His promise for you. Claim it. Pray it back to Him. And pray what Jesus said, but, he, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. A courageous witness. Folks, listen to me. As Christ followers... That is what we are called to be. Courageous witnesses for Jesus Christ. For the one who has given us eternal life. For the one who has sacrificed his life on the cross so that we could have the forgiveness of sins. The one who now has changed our life in a radical way. The one who secures our future in heaven. The one who gives us peace and confidence in a world of chaos even now. We are witnesses for Him. Can we do this on our own? No way. No way. I mean, if you're like me, we'll cower every time, won't we? We'll run and hide in the closet. But God didn't leave us on our own, did He? God has given us His Spirit. The same Spirit that empowered Stephen is the same Spirit that empowers me and empowers you to be a courageous witness for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, once again we thank You for Your grace and Your mercy in providing salvation for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to see our need for Jesus, to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. Thank you for giving us your Spirit. And by your Spirit, by the power of that Spirit, may we stand strong as courageous witnesses for your Son, Jesus. Lord, help us to be bold in living for you, in proclaiming Jesus, and even dying for Jesus. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as they do, let me encourage you to respond to God, to go to Him in prayer, to ask Him for boldness, to be courageous for Him. Perhaps you need to repent of sin that's holding you back. Seek out forgiveness from God. Whatever it is that God's leading you to do, now's the time to respond.